this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we're running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out the Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. Something I've always been curious about is how valuable I am on the black market. We spoke to Megan Lenhart, senior money writer for CNBC Make It, about how much hackers get for your personal data. As always, there's sort of a range on these things. I think it kind of depends on what the breach is and how savvy the fraudster who is who's selling it in the marketplace, of course. But let's just start with social security number. We all know that that's the baseline for your identity. So that actually only goes for about two to twenty five dollars. And really, it's usually sold for identity theft purposes. So if you're going to go out and you're going to start to build a profile on somebody, obviously, the first step is to get their social security number. And $2, then the next step, though? of course, is a driver's license. Right. That's a little bit more. Maybe you're going to get a minimum of 10 to $20 for that. And again, this is just, you know, another building block because this also usually has your picture on it, which is a nice way to get, get into the system. They'll use those for fake IDs or just get into the system verification since it has your picture and everything. How about credit exactly. cards? Credit cards are actually about the same cost as your driver's license. So 10, 20 bucks. And these are the kind of things that you'll pick up actually fairly easily for hackers through the skimming at the gas station, the magnetic strip gets picked up. You now have the credit card information. It's also, quite frankly, the easiest to shut down once you notice things are happening. And banks will certainly refund you the money once they find out what's going on. Banking information is a little bit more. It's between $10 and $25. And that's actually used for things where perhaps the end criminal wants to use it for a loan or opening accounts or maybe somehow getting access to PayPal and other cryptocurrency type of transactions. But again, banks really are trying to be on top of this you know, type of breach. It's going to be a quick hit and they're probably not going to be able to use it long term. Here's the big money items right here. Healthcare and medical records and then your passport information. How much are these worth and what are they using for? For health records and medical records, it really does range. It's probably the widest range. It can be anywhere from 10 to $1,000, perhaps even more. And it really depends on the robustness of of the record. So if it's just your name and perhaps uh, annual physical, it's not going to be worth a whole lot. But other medical records, particularly if you've been seeing the doctor for a long time, it's going to have everything from your name, your information, your contact information, sensitive medical information, probably your social security number, and usually some kind of payment information as well. That is the one-stop shop for criminals. And unfortunately, a lot of these medical systems are fairly antiquated, so they may be a little bit easier to hack. There have been stories in the news where people are installing ransomware at these hospitals and then saying, hey, pay us a bunch of Bitcoin and we'll unlock your system. Hospitals are easy to hack. And then passport information, that's probably another one of the best things that a hacker can get from you. It absolutely is because it's something that, again, it's going to take you a while to figure out that this is going on. And so they can craft an identity using that information and you might not catch on as quickly. And so it's able to be used in multiple scams. And then finally, how do these hackers actually sell your info? People in the industry call them darknet markets. It sounds so, you know, so creepy, but what are they doing? How do they, how do they sell your stuff? 
stuff. It's very similar. I, I really liked it. I, I spoke with Dan Smith from Radware and he likened it to a Craigslist, which I really thought was a really great analogy because I think we've all been on Craigslist at some point. Essentially, there's a lot of online marketplace and forums where you can sit there and post saying, hey, I have so many different IDs or whatever. Here's the data file. And they just require really basic verifications before they're able to actually proceed with the sale. It can happen pretty quick. And after that, it's just a buyer's market who's ever interested in getting some stolen information. The highest bidder goes, I'm assuming. Wow. And that's why these, it's always so important to keep an eye out for these data breaches and know where the possibility of your information is going to be at. You know, you always have to monitor it, monitor your credit cards, all that stuff. You just got to keep on top of everything so you don't get caught up in any situations like this. Megan Lenhart, senior writer for CNBC Make It. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Later this year, Ohio will begin to sell medical marijuana, and it's creating a whole bunch of jobs in the area. They're looking for, my favorite is the bud tender, the people who tend bar at the counter and sell you your bud. We spoke to Randy Tucker from the Cincinnati Inquirer about that and some other jobs that are opening up. Edible chefs, for instance, or cannabis chefs, if you rather prefer to call them that, uh, that's a um, entirely new uh, field for uh, people with culinary background. It requires a little science because you have to um, be able to extract the right amount of oils that concentrate from cannabis that state law allows you to infuse in different edibles. But the highest paid chefs can earn up to six figures or more are those that are the best at masking uh, the taste of cannabis, the THC in cannabis. So the edibles are not only uh, potent, but delicious. (laughs) And then uh, master growers also very in demand. I mean, these are the people that are adept at growing the plants properly on a big scale for commercial purposes. And these guys can make six figures also. Right. Or more. And I I would say, you know, based on my research that uh, master growers are probably the most coveted employees in the uh, cannabis industry. It's pretty simple to learn how to uh, grow cannabis, the basics of growing cannabis, but to be able to cultivate Tons and tons of cannabis consistently over time requires some experience and uh, special knowledge and techniques. If you have that, you can basically set your own standard in terms of pay and uh, benefits. We know this. There's a ton of money in in, in the industry. It's uh, worth multi-millions of dollars. Even on the entry level, going back to the bud tenders, you can start out making 12 to $15 an hour. And what I thought was kind of interesting, it's your first step to becoming a store manager. And you can get about 40 grand a year for that. So that's, I mean, you know, for people starting out, that's pretty good. It can be. There are a lot of entry-level jobs. There are a lot of ways to get into the business with no uh, formal education or training. You know, bud tender would be one of those uh, positions. Dispensaries are just looking for someone who's good with people and smart enough to uh, be able to talk about the benefits of the products they sell with their customers. There are also jobs like bud trimmers who basically uh, trim the uh, excess foliage off of marijuana buds until they save the most potent part for sale. All of those jobs can get you in the door, cause the new industry, and the training is pretty much on the job. It can open doors to becoming store managers or even assistant growers, manage, uh, master growers. And, and some of these other jobs require, you know, if you want to be a master grower, you might have to have a degree in horticulture, or if you want to be an extraction technician, you might need a, some type of science degree. Where would you get some of this training? I, I saw in your article, you spoke to somebody at the Cleveland School of Cannabis. 
Yes, there are a couple of schools. Well, now, the Cleveland School of Cannabis is a technical school that has a few certificate programs that introduce you to the industry and familiarize you with operations. The training, though, that you need for some of the higher paying positions like master growers will require you to actually go to a bachelor's degree or a PhD from an accredited college in chemistry, biology, horticulture, one of those disciplines. So there is some training available on a basic level at schools like the Cleveland School of Cannabis, but they're really, most uh, cannabis companies are looking for people with experience working in labs, scientists with advanced degrees, technicians to fill some of those higher paying jobs. At the end of your article, you do mention a couple of things to know. The two that really caught my eye were, one, federal labor laws don't apply to a lot of these places. So if you're looking for health insurance and benefits, maybe not the right place. And the last one, which is pretty good, you might think you're a shoe in for the job because of your experience on the black market for so many years. But a lot of these places don't want to hear anything about that. Well, you know, that's what I've heard. I think there's a perception out there uh, a stereotype that people working in the cannabis industry are ex-hippies or stoners who <laughs> right. uh, found their dream job working for these firms. But most of the companies that I've spoken to that are opening up shop in Ohio, they're looking for mature professional candidates who will be the face of a serious business, especially here in Ohio where cannabis for recreational use isn't legal yet. The medical marijuana dispensaries are looking for people who will present a very professional and polished profile to their customers. Well, it's on its way to Ohio later this year, so we'll see how this emerging industry takes place and how many jobs we end up getting out of it. Randy Tucker, reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the silliest stories we covered all week was about America's hottest export. We hear a lot of news about tariffs and trade wars, but we spoke to journalist and contributor to The Garden, Sue Yoon, about the hottest export coming out of America and its sperm. The, the biggest exporter countries are the U.S. and Denmark. And this is not a product that's regulated across the world. It's not really regulated in the U.S. So we don't really know. There's no national register of sperm donors. It's information held by private sperm banks, but it's Cryos and it's California Cryobank. And both of them would each tell me they were the biggest. There's a little, me- a little rivalry between them even. Uh, I think Cryos, the one from Denmark, was saying, you know, if you want anything in Europe, we own Europe, you know, yeah. <laughs> come to us. Exactly. And when I was talking to California Cryobank, they said, we're the biggest by far. And I, and I said, what, by what metric? And they said, by any metric. These are two countries that still allow for anonymous donation, although California Cryobank right. has actually told me they're moving away from that. And that is why they're able to have a lot of sperm on reserve. What is the reason for them changing to non-anonymous donations now? That seemed like one of the big pluses is that for women, maybe lesbian couples that wanted to use this, they didn't necessarily need interaction with the father. They, you know, they wanted to start their own family on their own. So an anonymous thing kind of would work for them. California at least is saying that more than half of their client base now is single women by choice and lesbian couples. And those are families that the children, it's no secret that you use a sperm donor. You're not there because you have fertility issues, questions about 
paternity and the biological father's identity are kind of natural, and, and that population does tend to want to know about the donor. Previously, artificial insemination started with infertile heterosexual couples, and people didn't want people to know they used a sperm donor, and they liked to have a donor whose physical traits matched the father's or wouldn't give rise to questions. And now it's kind of opened up the market in terms of, well, people already know, it's not a secret that there's a sperm donor involved. And one of the things that one of the experts is saying to me is that they're not as particular about like having a certain look. One of the women I quoted in the story, she is Dutch and ang- Anglo, and, and she did say she felt a little bit weird about thinking sperm. There was an African-American donor that she was really interested in, and she ultimately decided not to go that way she, because she felt like she was bringing a child in the world who would already have a, quote, unconventional childhood, and she mm-hmm. felt like, as she said, within her race that there would be less questions. One of the interesting things that figures into this whole thing is, are the laws dictating how many families or children a single donor can provide. In the article you put in the UK, one donor can only endow 10 families domestically. And the US has no limit on anything like that. So that's why they're in higher demand. A market that where the demand is fed by the supply, really. We don't have laws regulating that. I think some sperm banks would 25 is the number I heard thrown out a lot, 25 families. And those numbers are designated by population. I didn't know anything about this market before I started doing this story, but the reason they have those limits is they're afraid of potential incest with half-siblings. And actually, I was just at the gym the other day, and a 21-year-old, who I didn't think would have any exposure to sperm donations being so young, said that she has a friend who knows she's a sperm donor baby. And then this woman I met was in Israel at a party, met someone who looked exactly like her friend, showed them pictures, and so they looked identical, and asked this woman, were you by any chance a sperm donor baby? And she was, and she thinks she found this woman's half-sibling wow. in Israel, and she knows <laughs> her from New York. I mean, all these yeah. factors really, there's a large supply, the, the laws are a little lax. All this really makes for the case that why sperm from the United States is in such high demand. Sue Yoon, journalist and contributor to The Guardian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You've all heard about the Cupcake ATM, but are you ready for this one? You might soon be able to buy your steaks from a vending machine. We spoke to Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News, about the Applestone Meat Company and their meat vending machines. Applestone Meat Company, which is based in this actually groovy part of New York near Woodstock, which has become a very fashionable place for people to have country houses. This meat purveyor had a processing center and it was such a small town where he was, people would come and knock on the door because they knew that he had steak inside, but he didn't have a retail component. And he was trying to figure out what was the best way to get people steak, to be able to sell steak without having to hire staff or build a store. And he grew up in New York a long time ago, and there were these Horn and Hard Art. I don't know if you know them, but they're these really old school retro. They were big in the cities in the 50s. You would open a window. There was almost no people working there that you could see but you would sort of open a window and you could get your sandwich or your cup of soup or your cup of coffee. It was all automated. And he thought about that and he thought, hmm, maybe there's something here. So he put two and two together, steak and machine together, basically. It's a great story because they were doing some very good stuff there. You're right. These little vending machines that you you push the button and the carousel turns and you can make your choice and everything like that. It cuts down on so much cost. They're, They're already cutting down the meat and everything. So it kind of just made sense to portion it out and put it into a vending machine like that. That's exactly right. And the other thing is it frees the consumer up because instead of trying to run to get to the butcher shop at 7 o'clock before closing, if you want to get a steak at 2 o'clock in the morning or you last minute decide you need one on Sunday after it's closed, 
you can just go and you, and there's a big assortment, not one of those small vending machines, it's, it's an industrial size ones and they have an even bigger one coming. Yeah, the owners of this is uh, Joshua Applestone, and he's a fourth-generation butcher. So, I mean, he's been in the business for a long time. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to cut down the meats. Price-wise, how does this fare with going to your local butcher down the street? That's a really good question. I mean, he's you're actually absolutely right about Joshua Applestone. Before he did this, he started a company called Slicers. I'm not sure if you know about it in L.A., but it has a lot of cred here. He's one of, like, this cult of butchers who created this great, he, he did a whole animal butchery before a lot of people did. He worked on humane, organically sourced meat, so people trust him. I mean, that's the first thing because, honestly, I think a meat vending machine does sound a little gimmicky. So these prices, they're not like bargain. They're not, it's not like it's five ninety nine for a steak, right. but maybe that's better, right? I think that would set up some alarm bells. The prices he told me, like twenty one ninety nine for a ribeye. I'm not sure what size it is. It's got to be cheaper than what you're buying at a place where you have to worry about paying for people who are working, selling behind the counter. So it's a little bit cheaper, but it's not, it's not questionably, it's not like weirdly cheap. Right. But, but as you said, you know, he has the cred, he does the whole animal breakdown. Mm -hmm. They source all their meat locally. So uh, people that are in the community live within there. They like that stuff. They want to know that it's coming locally and it's staying there within the community. Their operation there is open from 11 to 6. So someone's on hand to answer any questions that you want. But as you said, it's 24 hours, the vending machines, but it's working. You know, they have to restock the meat multiple times a day. They've said they're planning on expanding all over the place. That part of it, that business is working. It's crazy. He thought when he did it, he was like, let's just do it. In fact, in the very beginning, he didn't even charge people for it. Like, I think he just wanted to see how it would work. Wow. And the demand was astonishing. I guess if you're going to get free, good quality beef or pork, people will grab it. But then when he started actually charging for it, when he fitted it in these machines with credit card payment systems, he can't keep it in stock. And I think it represents like 70% of the sales now. It's been an off-the-chart hit. He sees it as a way to maybe combat problems in food desert, but that's definitely pie in the sky because you have to be able to keep those stocks with freshly purveyed meat. But he has a dream and it's amazing, you know. They do uh, beef, lamb, pork, ground beef, and they're going to expand into other stuff, hot dogs, bacon, cold cuts, chicken, like the whole nine. And they're and frozen. Out. Exactly. And, and I think he also, I think the very next thing that you're going to see is frozen because there's a big demand for frozen meat. People find themselves, as I said, it's a big vacation community. And so people might want to buy meat and take it home or store it. So a new vending, they're coming, he's coming out with like a new line of vending machines that are supposed well, to be a little bit better, <laughs> a little more upgraded. You're exactly right, Oscar. Like the ones he started with, like basically are the kind of commercial ones you'd see in prisons and, and schools <laughs> where if you've been in a prison and right. tried to get a sandwich, then you might be familiar. But these next ones, he's having them specially custom made. They cost like $30,000 each. And he said, it's going to be as exciting as when you first got your iPhone. That's how he's very excited wow. about this. <laughs> it kind of sounds like one of these things like, ah, meat, you know, getting steaks from a vending machine. It's just a, it's a gimmick and all this stuff. But, you know, they're doing quality cuts. Obviously they, you know, they might not be the cheapest, but it is something that can catch on. And, and if it's attached to the way he's doing it, I mean, he has his processing plant right there. This is just the method so they can cut all the costs. They don't have to really have a butcher on hand cutting the things. They're already working and breaking things down. I mean, it sounds like it could work. Can it work all across the country? Who knows? They're going to be expanding, but I wouldn't doubt seeing these in a lot of major cities. I think you're exactly right. He's definitely coming into Manhattan in 2019, and he's hinted at other places that he's going to go into 
So I think like he really believes in this. All right. Well, look out for the Applestone meat vending machines. Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.